Morning, all. Hey, um, can we say a, a quick prayer for all the people who are greeting right now outside? Because I feel like they're probably frozen to those poles out there. Yeah, we're from Florida. This is this is cold. Um, okay. Uh, my name's Jeremy. I'm the pastor here, and um, and we're gonna this this is this week and next week we're rounding out our Acts series. And these next two weeks are, um, they're going to be a trick to figure out what in the world could the Lord have to tell us through these sort of obscure stories. So let me do my best with an intro like this. Imagine that an itinerant preacher is growing a significant following and he comes to Nashville. And this preacher starts preaching against the music industry, preaching specifically even against the Christian music industry. And he says, stop making your music. Stop. This culture is going crazy because of the things that you are exporting into it. The, you've made a god of your music. You have temples all over this city called things like Exit Inn and The Basement and something that you call the Mother Church. <laughs> Blasphemy. And what if your friends started to believe this? And what if they started following this guy and, and putting down their guitars and putting down their recu recording studios, uh, putting down their contracts, and the music industry would, would begin to suffer? Out, we would feel that around town. Uh, what if there was not as many shows, not as many recording deals? What if the bachelorettes stopped coming? Oh, I forgot. We want that to stop. I'm still new here. Uh, how about the pedal pubs? You want them? Gone. Gone. Okay, good. All right, good. Uh, right, Nashville would start to feel that. Here's where we might start to actually feel it and say, uh-oh, what if homes started to foreclose? What if, what if our home values began to decrease because people were leaving this place? What if businesses and restaurants that we love started to shutter their doors? What, what if the next from Nashville Spotify playlist started to dwindle to just a few? The city would be in an uproar. The city would want that preacher's head. That's a little bit of what's happening here in Acts 19. But the reality is, I think for us to enter into what we're about to read, it is helpful for us to pull back and think a little bit about our culture. And it's easy to poke fingers at things like the bachelorettes and the pedal pubs. But it's another thing to begin to think about, how, how am I impacted by idolatry myself? And how are the people around me and the systems that I involve myself in, how could we potentially be centering and orbiting around things that may have gotten our lives out of whack? More to come on that, but let's read the passage first. Uh, this is, I believe, Catherine Singleton is going to come up and help. And we are in Acts 19, verses 21 through 41. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. 
And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Aserachs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know where they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who, is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are either sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, there were, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's okay. We're almost done with Acts. But then we're going to go to Isaiah, and that's not going to be any easier. Uh, yeah, you see what I mean? Like, there, this passage is a little obscure in how in the world do we, like, nobody preaches anything. It just sort of, like, there's a story, and then it's just sort of ends. So to stand back, I think, in first saying, how does this, how do we see this kind of idolatry happening in our culture? We can talk about the music industry. We can talk about the, the, the fame and the notoriety and the money that drives much of that, uh, that much of what is exported is garbage. Like, holy, 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 I'm high on loving you. Right? That's not about Jesus. Although I love FGL. I love them. I, it's a guilty pleasure. Uh, 
right? But we are, we are exporting this in song, encapsulating it and sending it across the world and influencing people with it. And so how we do that as a city matters. And there's idolatry all wrapped up in that. And again, it's easy to poke holes in out, that, what we're, out there. What we're also going to try to do is ask, how does this challenge me and the people around me? Because last week, we talked in Acts 17 about sort of our personal idols, and a heart idol being anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. That was how we defined idolatry last week. This week, we're talking about cultural idols. How does when an idol metastasizes and begins to grow and even create its own culture, how do we think about that? What does Christianity and the Christian gospel message have to say about that? That's where we're headed. So um, fairly simple in our outline today is these two things. One, idols deform culture. That's everything that we see in this hail goddess Artemis thing. Idols deform culture. But two, Jesus transforms culture. Uh, so let's jump in to idols deforming culture. To, to understand what's happening here, there's a lot of backstory that's necessary. So let me try to fill in some of these gaps so that we can understand. Paul now, last week, he was on his second leg of his missionary journey. He has now rounded home plate and is going back out again for his third one. Uh, he's been in Ephesus here. If you look at the beginning of uh, chapter 19 and the first 20 or so verses, it describes that this is not something that he just sort of dropped into. He's been in Ephesus ministering, preaching the gospel, working these things out for three years, somewhere in the neighborhood of three years. And in fact, we see the very beginning of when he's starting to think, I think it's time for me to go, which sets a, tra a trajectory for where we're going next week, which is Paul at his final destination in Rome in Acts 28. So we see at the beginning of this passage, he begins to, he says, I must also see Rome. And then he heads out and heads that direction. But there's lots of activity that has been done in these three years. The Holy Spirit has done some bonkers things like he tends to do whenever Paul uh, shows up in a place. And so there's miracles happening. There's these uh, opponents of the miracles that are happening, like these Jewish exorcists come in and they're like, hey, I think we could probably have some of that Holy Spirit power too, but really not without the God part. They try to do some exorcisms. Those backfire completely. They end up getting jumped by the demons instead of jumping them. That's a fun story. Um, and then magic in and of itself, right after that account, is this account of, of throngs of people bringing $6 million of their magic books to be burned in the city square. So magic idolatry, this sort of searching for the supernatural, but kind of in all the wrong ways, was very much part of what built this Ephesian culture. And then the last three years, here comes this the way thing, this Christianity thing, and all these little Christians, all these mini Christs now going to share this gospel message and messing up everything in our culture. They're messing with our culture, they're messing with our community, they're messing with our economy. And that's ultimately what gets their attention. The reason why 25,000 people show up for a riot is because their pocketbooks are getting messed with now. 
What happens when yours gets messed up? Now we might be able to relate. Ancient Ephesus is this port city uh, right on the fringe of modern-day Turkey, uh, right on the coast, and it was built a lot by this sort of religious tourism identity. In the same way that, you know, people take trips to Israel to uh, tour all of the ancient sites and do all the ancient things. And if you have been there, from what I hear, there is also just as much of sort of a consumer culture of things you can buy and tours you can go on and lots of money that can be siphoned away from you sort of in the name of religion. That's very similar to what this ancient city of Ephesus is and what was really fueling the economy. There's this temple that's four times, last week we talked about the Parthenon, four times the size of the Parthenon. So this giant place, all built to honor this goddess Artemis. It actually became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's how amazing this place is. And so people would flock from all across the world. And so when, uh, when the town clerk says that all of Asia and even the world is coming to worship, that's true. Like, it was drawing people from across the globe. Especially, there was this one week called Artemision in the spring, and they would use this entire week to sort of celebrate fertility and celebrate the outdoors, and this, this goddess was one of a, kind of like an ancient Mother Earth, maybe a way to, to describe her and what the kinds of things that she was worshipped for. So she was worshipped so that um, there would be bearing of many children. She was worshipped so that crops would go well. She was worshipped so that families could have food to eat. And part of the way she was worshipped is she was worshipped with these many silver shrines. Many silver shrines that were built out to look like those little temples. And there's one of two things that you could do with those. You could purchase them kind of on your way into town, and then you could go lay them sort of in veneration at the great temple as a way of sort of paying homage. The other way you could do that is you could take that home, and you could prop it up somewhere, and you could worship the goddess Artemis from the comfort of your very own home. Kind of like live stream church, but a long time ago. Just kidding. That was a, that was a dig for no reason that I didn't mean to say that. Um, so, great. I think you get enough of the idea there. So, what is Demetrius's problem? Like, why is he so upset here? What's going on? He is one of the purveyors of these fine temple silver statues. And, you know, he's clicking around on QuickBooks one day and realizing that his numbers over the last quarter have really been dropping. And he's looking around going, what, what is happening I thought we were going gangbusters. People are coming from all over the world and worshiping. They're buying these things. They're hook, line, and sinker. Every bit of this is so good. You see a little bit, this is ultimately, this is kind of greed cloaked in nationalism and religiosity. But he tips his hand in verse 27. And he says, listen to the order. He says, we're in danger of our trade being hurt. Oh, and Artemis being dishonored. Don't forget about Artemis. But like, really what's in danger, he, who he's gathering is all of his like trade worker buddies. He's getting the union together and saying, guys, something is awry. My pie chart is not nearly as full as it used to be. 
And so this riot gets stirred up. And there, you know, one person talks to the next. Yeah, I have been noticing. Yeah, there haven't been as many people coming to worship. Yeah, there have been more people that have been gathering in this separate sect and they're worshiping together on Sundays and they're talking about that Jesus is Lord and Artemis is not, that these gods made with hands are not even real gods. Everything is going awry. The status quo was upside down. And so they, they can't find Paul And so they find the next best thing and they grab two of his buddies and they drag them in to this 25,000 seat theater. And and then when any of them try to speak, they just drown them out by saying, Hail Artemis of the Ephesians. It's a a, a real confusing time uh, that they find themselves in. And then the town clerk stands up and he kind of quiets the crowd. This is a Roman province. So part of the reason he's quieting the crowd is because he's not totally in charge. The Romans are. And so he's saying, hey guys, remember, like the Romans have their rules and we've got to like, they let us worship and do our things, but we got to like keep it on the down low. And if anything gets too crazy, then they could come and shut this whole thing down. So I know there may be some issues, but listen, it's not really that big of a deal. Let's just move on. The entire culture had been formed by this worship of Artemis. The Every bit of life centered around worship of this temple and of this goddess. But like Dave said earlier, the goal of worship is giving something great value and great worth so that our hearts will begin to more and more cherish that thing. But don't you want the thing that you worship to actually set you free? Demetrius does not seem free here to me. He, he seems bound up. He's so concerned about his wallet. He's so concerned about not being taken care of. But if this is the great goddess Artemis who's supposed to take care of him and the, his fertility and the number of their children and the types of animals they're able to bring in and kill to sustain their family, she's supposed to take care of that stuff. But he's so concerned about controlling his pocketbook, something's not adding up. This worship that... Uh, he is giving to this great goddess is not giving him the return on the investment. In fact, it's enslaving him and turning him inside of himself. Listen to Psalm 115. This is frightening. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throats. Those who make them become like them. What you worship, you will become. Yikes. And so you see this sort of deformation of an entire city as they are worshiping this thing that is not real and not true and not good and not gracious and not loving and not benevolent. And so you see it just, this culture begins to turn in on itself and get so confused. They don't even know what they're in, what they're rioting for. Every community worships something. Every family has something that is their centrifugal force that keeps them bound together. Every friend group, every church, every business, every city, every nation 
across the world has something that is the indivisible thing around which they, they uh, create the culture and they live out of. And then practices are built to reinforce that love. Let me give you an example. One of my family's, if you look at my family's practices, the things that we do with our time, one of the things that you would point to the Kemp family and you would say, the Kemp family loves this, is food. We love food. I love smoking meat out on the grill. We love finding new recipes as often as we can. Uh, we love scouring Nolensville Pike for the best little indigenous restaurants, and there's so many, and it's so much fun. Which is great and all, until this week, my wife suggests, hey, what if we just do sandwiches for dinner? And I say, hail hot dinner. It will provide for me the comfort that I desire in my belly and in my soul. Right? It's fine until it's not. Idolatry isn't, like God made a lot of really cool stuff. And so it's natural and normal that we would be drawn to be like, oh, that's so great. That, that plate, that dish is so amazing. Oh, that concert is so like it's so engaging i feel like i'm just almost transcendent when i'm in at that show or when i'm at that sporting event or whatever that is those things are good for a reason because god is good and all that he has made he has made out of an overflow of love to say you guys think this stuff's amazing guess who made it all guess how great he is but we can so quickly flip creature and creator we can so quickly flip worshiped, worshiping him for worshiping the things that he has made. And when we do, everything inside, of gets, everything inside of us gets all upside down and backwards. And all of our desires start going all over the place because we're not made to be satisfied with those things. We're made to be satisfied by the one and true and real Lord of the universe. So what, what would your practices, what would the shape of your life say, if someone were to look at you and follow you around for a week, what would your practices say that you love? What would your family practices look like? What would your business practices look like? What would your political practices look like? Your sports team practices, kids, your, your classroom practices, what would they show? And is health coming out of those things? Or are the things that you're desiring to fulfill you and make you whole actually sabotaging you? Because if idols do anything, here's what they do. They overpromise and they underdeliver every time. And we fall for it every time, again and again. If only, if only I had enough money in the bank. If only my house was like I wanted it to be. If, if only my children, if only my parents, if only this relationship, then, 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 I could be okay. But the reality is, if we are looking at created things to satisfy our souls, we will never be satisfied. We are deformed by our idolatrous trap practices, but Jesus offers transformation. Think about Exodus 20, the first commandment. 
you shall have no other gods before me. Money, sex, power, food, fill in the blank. There's so many things that feel so good when they're so much more tangible and real than God is. And so for a time, they satisfy. For a time, it feels right. For a time, it feels like, yes, this is, this is what living is. This is what I've been made for. But then the more that we chase those things, the more that they unravel and the more that we find themselves to be unsatisfying to our souls. Because idols say, work hard for me, build your life around me, sacrifice to me, give me your time, give me your money, give me your energy, and I will save you. Listen to what God says to the Ephesian church that has been built up in the wake of Paul's ministry here. In Ephesians 2, verse 8. If idols say, work hard to be saved, God's grace says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that nobody can boast. Do you hear the difference in that? Do you hear the difference in the invitation of the one true God who alone is actually able to be worshipped and give you what you desire as he does? The one true God who deserves our worship and yet we continue to run away from him all the time and run to all the cool stuff he made instead? He says, by grace, you're saved. You didn't do anything for it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't merit it. You can't fix your life enough to get it. It is only when you finally say, I tried everything and nothing worked. St. Augustine famously tried a bunch of stuff, ultimately came to the conclusion, my heart's looking for something else. And then he found it in Jesus. Because we aren't saved by a culture we can create on our own. We aren't saved by an amount of, of good works that we can cobble together to make our lives work. For those of you coming out of the, the parenting conference that we hosted here on Thursday, one of my burdens for us walking out of that conference is that we would not trust in all the things that we learned at that conference to save us or our kids. It is only by the grace of Jesus that anybody in this room or their children are going to know Jesus and be healthy and be loving and be a, a, a member of the family of faith. It is only by the grace of Jesus that any of that will happen. It's not that those things aren't helpful. It's just when we ascend those things to ultimate. Okay, if I can just have the right conversation with my kid, if I can just get them to open up their heart to me, if I can just not screw up so much, then they will be okay. You're believing in idols. You're believing a false gospel. You're believing that it is what you do, not by grace, that you or anybody else is saved. And so we can now begin to create new practices. Because the next verse says, don't forget, because we are his workmanship created in Christ. Using some of that same idol imagery, except we don't make them, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. 
out of that freedom we can begin. The freedom that by grace we are saved, now we can pick up all the great tools from that parenting conference. Now we can pick up all the wisdom of all the podcasts that we listen to. Now we can pick up all the greatness of the books and the friendships and all the things that God has made for us to be healthy and to thrive in and use them purposefully, but not ultimately. Because Jesus transforms us and then through us, really does transform culture. Most of the time, though, that feels very ordinary. Because when you read this passage, there's a, a lot of it that's like, well, I don't really know what to take out of that. If you were to read that, maybe in your small group discussions this week, you may have had a little bit of trouble figuring out how, how exactly do we apply this to us. Most formation is very under the radar. Most formation does not happen with one great sermon. It happens through habits, slow and low over the course of a long period of time. Sunday worship, what we do here is reformation. It is counterformation to all the idols that we are constantly pulled in all different directions of every week. Practicing the reality of who God is and who I am. That's why Hebrew says, don't give this up. It's not because God has some sort of a checkbox that you've got to check today. And now he's pleased with you. It's because, no, he's pleased with you and he wants you to know it. That there's good news for you and he wants you to know it. And the more we live out there and away from Christian community and away from the sacraments and away from the preached word, the more that we begin to believe a whole host of other things that are not true. Your small group is reformation, practicing the reality that you are made for community and not for yourself. These outreach events and these other things that, that we're trying to train ourselves to think of ourselves as missionaries in everyday life, that's counterformation to the reality that is preached to you all the time, that you are an individual, you are autonomous, and your whole life is about gratifying yourself. So that when you go out and live this counterformed life, that it might shake things up. You might cause a riot or two. Like, there might be some things that you might poke and go, I don't think that's actually healthy. I don't think that's actually right. There may be something in your workplace that you kind of just gently push into and say, I, I actually have a different opinion about that. There may be something in your family that you may say, children, there may be something that you guys would go, hey, what if, I, this might be healthier maybe if we did this, or what you said to me the other day really hurt. What if we collectively began to live this counterformed life and not be surprised that riots might not break out? So my, uh, my oldest and I were at uh, a Georgia football game about three weeks ago now, and we were standing right outside the sort of main student entry gates at Sanford Stadium, and there were these two guys on little soapboxes, um, and they had microphones, and they had signs that said, repent, in big letters, and they were preaching. Typically, uh, the way that my heart naturally responds to that is not like, yeah, go get them. It's more like, ah, I agree with your message. I'm, I don't necessarily with your methods. But something that he said really did catch me and sort of give me a different lens in that moment because he, he was preaching about 
the the connection between all of the like gladiator and all of the old ancient games and how there was so much brutality and commercialization and distraction that sport can become when it is sort of elevated to that place of ultimate. And it did just make me pause and think, how, how am I being formed right now by being here? When I sing glory, glory to old Georgia, how am I being formed? Do you want to sing it? We can sing it right now if you want. Uh, how is that forming me? Nothing we do is benign. Nothing we do does not impact us. Nowhere we put ourselves does not have some sort of an impact on our soul. Again, God has made all things good in their appropriate place. But what could be things for you that you have elevated to an ultimate to say this must satisfy and then are consistently disappointed when it doesn't? Jesus wants to occupy that place. The invitation for you this morning is to, like the guy with the sign, repent of that. Recognize that you are trying to elevate something to a level that only God can inhabit. And then would you courageously walk into the unknown of following him? That in the short run is a lot less satisfying. Jesus called it picking up your cross and bearing it for a reason but in the long run will satisfy your soul. Let's pray. So Father, we need your eyes. We need your eyes to see because our, our hearts truly are idol factories. Uh, we are so quick at creating other things to worship and even unbeknownst to us, forming culture around us, circulating around those things, forming families, forming businesses, forming neighborhoods that are centered around the wrong things. Forgive us for our wayward hearts. But we also recognize that we can't even control ourselves. <laughs> we are so wired for worship that we just can't even control where our hearts go most of the time. But thank you that you don't wait for us to control ourselves. You don't have to wait to be invited in to renovate. But you blast in. And so I pray that you would. I pray that you, uh, even in ways we're not expecting, that you would blast into our lives this week. Help us to see ourselves. Help us to see our communities. Help us to see our families, our businesses, uh, even our city and our nation with a fresh lens to see how could this be different if the one true God was worshipped? What would I do? How would I live? What practices would I take up to more and more form myself to that reality? Thank you for the simplicity of this room and these people uh, that help me as we help each other to believe that you are real and that grace is for us. We pray in Christ. Amen.